wealth, wealth attraction research, W-A-R, war, third sort, wealth attraction research, W-A-R, war, third sort. You're listening to Wealth Attraction Research, W-A-R, or The Third Sort, presented by Hakeem Alipokis Alexander on Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., Spreaker, Social Podcasting, and Call-In, Social Podcasting, presented for World Reading Club in association with ExercisingYourMind.com and Uniquilibrium. This edition's reading focus is a continuance and comes to us from Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, Chapter 11, and this is Part 3, which has three parts within itself. I've already read Part 1, and which is the, called the first sort and the second sort and took a break and here we are recontinuing with the third sort and what sorts are we talking about here well he says that these different sorts of rude produce may be divided into three classes right and it's the the title is different effects of the progress of improvement upon three different sorts of rude produce and the different sorts of rude produce may be divided into three classes. The first comprehends those which it is scarce in the power of human industry to multiply at all. The second, those which it can multiply in proportion to the demand. And the third, those in which the efficacy of industry is either limited or uncertain. In the progress of wealth and improvement, the real price of the first may rise to any degree of extravagance and seems not to be limited by any certain boundary. That of the second, though it may rise greatly, has, however, a certain boundary beyond which it cannot well pass for any considerable time altogether. That of the third, which we're about to read, though though its natural tendency is to rise in the progress of improvement, yet in the same degree of improvement it may sometimes happen even to fall, sometimes to continue the same, and sometimes to rise more or less according to different accidents, render, according as different accidents, render the efforts of human industry in multiplying this sort of root produce more or less successful. And that is where this third sort takes up. Third sort. The third and last sort, last sort of root produce, of which the price naturally rises in the progress of improvement, is that in which the efficacy of human industry in augmenting the quantity is either limited or uncertain. Though the real price of this sort of rude produce therefore naturally tends to rise in the progress of improvement, yet according as different accidents happen to render the efforts of human industry more or less successful in augmenting the quantity, it may happen sometimes even to fall, sometimes to continue the same in very different parts of improvement, and sometimes to rise more or less in the same period. There are some sorts of rude produce which, which, which nature has rendered a kind of appendages to other sorts, 
so that the quantity of the one which any country can afford is necessarily limited by that of the other. The quantity of wood or raw hides, for example, which any country can afford is necessarily limited by the number of great and small cattle that are kept in it. The state of, of its improvement and the nature of its agriculture again necessarily determine this number. The same causes which, in the progress of improvement, gradually raise the price of butcher's meat should have the same effect, it may be thought, upon the prices of wood and raw hides, and raise them to, and raise them to nearly in the same proportion. It probably would be so, if in the rude beginnings of improvement the market for the latter commodities was confined within the narrow bounds as that for the former. But the extent of their respective markets is commonly extremely different. The market for butcher's meat is almost everywhere confined to the country which produces it. Ireland and some parts of British America indeed carry on a considerable trade in salt provisions, but they are, I believe, the only countries in the commercial world which do so, or which export to other countries any considerable part of their butcher's meat. The market for wool and raw hides, on the contrary, is in the rude beginnings of improvement very seldom confined to the country which produced them. They can easily be transported to distant countries. Wool without any preparation and raw hides with very little. And as they are materials of many manufacturers, the industries of other countries may occasion a demand for them, though that of the country which produces them might not occasion any. In countries ill-cultivated, and therefore but thinly inhabited, the price of the wool and the hide bears always a much greater proportion to that of the whole beast than in countries where, improvement and population being further advanced, there is more demand for butcher's meat. Mr. Hume observes that in the Saxon times, the fleece was estimated at two-fifths the value of the whole sheep, and that this was much above the proportion of its present estimation. In some provinces of Spain, I have been assured the sheep is frequently killed merely for the sake of the fleece and the tallow. The carcass is often left to rot upon the ground, or to be devoured by beasts and birds of prey. If this sometimes happens even in Spain, it happens almost constantly in Chile at Buenos Aires, and many other parts of Spanish America, where the horned cattle are almost constantly killed merely for the sake of the hide and the tallow. This too used to happen almost constantly in Hispaniola, Hispaniola, while it was infested by the buccaneers and before the settlement, improvement, and populousness of the French plantations, which now extend around the coast of almost the whole western half of the island, had given some value to the cattle of the Spaniards, who still continued to possess not only the eastern part of the coast, but the whole inland and mountainous parts of the country. Though in the progress of improvement and population, 
the price of the whole beast necessarily rises, yet the price of the carcass is likely to be much more affected by this rise than that of the wool and the hide. The market for the carcass, being the rude state of being in the rude state of society, confined always to the country which produces it, must necessarily be extended in proportion to the improvement and population of that country. But the market for wool and the hides, even of a barbarous country, often extending to the whole commercial world, it can very seldom be enlarged in the same proportion. The state of the whole commercial world can seldom be much affected by the improvement of any particular country, and the market for such commodities may remain the same, or very nearly the same, after such improvements as before. It should, however, in the natural course of things, rather upon the whole be somewhat extended in consequence of them. If the manufacturers, especially of which those commodities are the materials, should ever come to flourish in the country, the market, though it might not be much enlarged, would at least be brought much nearer to the place of growth than before, and the price of those materials might at least be increased by what had usually been the expense of transporting them to distant countries. Though it might not rise, therefore, in the same proportion as that of butcher's meat, it ought naturally to rise somewhat, and it ought certainly not to fall. I mean, the details, Mr. Smith, the details. In England, however, notwithstanding the flourishing state of its woolen manufacture, the price of English wool has fallen very considerably since the time of Edward III. There are many authentic records which demonstrate that during the reign of that prince toward the middle of the 14th century or about 1339, what was reckoned the modern, what was reckoned the moderate and reasonable price of the, the tod or 28 pounds of English wool was not less than 10 shillings of the money of those times, containing at the rate of 20 pence the ounce, six ounces of silver tower weight equal to about 30 shillings of our present money. In the present times, one and twenty shillings, the tod may be reckoned a good price for very good English wool. In the present times, one and twenty shillings, the tod may be reckoned a good price for very good English wool. The money price of wool, therefore, in the time of Edward III, was to its money price in the present times as ten to seven. Hmm. The superiority of its real price was still greater. At the rate of six shillings and eight pence to quarter, ten shillings was in those ancient times the price of twelve bushels of wheat. At the rate of twenty-eight shillings the quarter, one and twenty shillings in the present time the price of six bushels only. The proportion between the real prices of ancient and modern times, therefore, is as twelve to six. Huh. The proportion between the real prices of ancient and modern times is therefore is as 12 to 6 or as 2 to 1. Hmm. In those ancient times, a tot of wool would have purchased twice the quantity of subsistence which it will purchase at present, huh. and consequently twice the quantity of labor if the real recompense of labor had been the same in both periods. The degradation both in the real and nominal value of wool could never have happened in consequence of the natural course of things. No, see, there we go. There's another clue again. Human manipulation of the prices of things. 
seeing that the degradation both in the real and nominal value of wool could never have happened in consequence of the natural course of things. It has accordingly, accordingly been the effect of violence and artifice. First, of the absolute prohibition of exporting wool from England. Secondly, of the permission of importing it from Spain duty-free. Thirdly, of the prohibition of exporting it from Ireland to any other country but England. Hmm. So you could look at that. So it has accordingly been the effect of violence and artifice, right? The degradation, both of the real and nominal value of wool, could never have happened in consequence of the natural course of things. So the price going down could never have happened in natural course. It happened by violence and artifice. In consequence of these regulations, the market for English wool, instead of being somewhat extended in the consequence of improvement of England, has been confined to the home market, where the wool of several other countries is allowed to come into competition with it, and where that of Ireland is forced into competition with it. As the woolen manufacturers, too, of Ireland are fully as much discouraged as is consistent with justice and fair dealing, the Irish can work up but a small part of their own wool at home and are, therefore, obliged to send a greater proportion of it to Great Britain, the only market they are allowed. And that human, that, that violence and artifice, right, which they call regulations. I have not been able to find any such authentic records concerning the price of raw hides in ancient times. Wool was commonly paid as a subsidy to the king, and its valuation in that subsidy ascertains, at least in some degree, what was its ordinary price. But this seems not to have been the case with raw hides. Fleetwood, however, from an account in 1425 between the prior of Burchester, Oxford, and one of his canons, gives us their price, at least as it was stated upon that particular occasion, viz. five ox hides at twelve shillings, five cow hides at seven shillings and three pence, thirty-six sheepskins of two years old at nine shillings, thirteen calves skins at two shillings. In 1425, twelve shillings contained about the same quantity of silver as four and twenty shillings of our present money. Hmm. Twelve shillings in 1425 contained about the same quantity of silver as four and twenty shillings of our present money. So, their twelve shillings had twice as... So their silver was twice as pure before than it is now. That's fucked up. All right. That's called debasement, by the way. And, that, and that's the same old thing as regulations, violence, and uh, what was the word he used? Uh, artifice. This is all the price of money. The real price of money, I'm starting to see more and more, or, or, or what where money really originated, is actually related to the land and food, specifically. Specifically food, because people have to be paid as they're working, right? And, yeah, I just, it's the, it's the cost of their food, it's the labor, right? Of their, their subsistence is what needs to be paid to them. And so that's the real cost. That's, that's the real money right there. Real money is what it costs to feed people. Continuing. In 1425, 12 shillings contained about the same quantity of silver as 4 and 20 shillings of our present money. An ox hide, therefore, was in this account valued at the same price of silver at 4 shillings and 4 fifths of our present money. Its nominal price was a good deal lower than at present. But at the rate of 6 shillings and 8 pence the quarter, 
12 shillings, but in those times have purchased 14 bushels and four fifths of a bushel of wheat, which at three pence, or which at three and six pence the bushel, would in the present times cost 51 shillings, four pence, an oxide, four, oh, sorry, excuse me, 51 shillings and four pence. An oxide, therefore, would in those times have purchased as much corn as 10 shillings and three pence would purchase at present. Hmm. An oxide, therefore, would in those times have purchased as much corn as 10 shillings and three pence would purchase at present. Its real value was equal to 10 shillings and three pence of our present money. In those ancient times when the cattle were half starved during the greater part of the winter, we cannot suppose that they were of a very large size. An oxide which weighs four stone of 16 pounds avoirdupois is not in the present times reckoned a bad one, and in those ancient times it probably had been reckoned a very good one. But at half a crown the stone, which at this moment, February 1773, I understand to be the common price, such a hide would at present cost only ten shillings. Though its nominal price, therefore, is higher in the present than it was in those ancient times, its real price, the real quantity of subsistence which it will purchase, see, look at that, once again, the the its real price, the real quantity of subsistence which it will purchase or command is rather somewhat lower. See, that's, that's money. It's the subsistence. I'm getting closer to it and closer to those goes. It's real price. The real quantity of subsistence. That means food it will purchase. Subsistence, food, clothing, shelter. The real quantity of subsistence it will purchase or command is somewhat lower. And that is it there. That is it right there. So that's what we're going to That's real price. So I'm putting down real price. And this is going to be money, right? Eventually I'm getting to the... It is the real quantity. The real... I'd write this down. Quantity. Of subsistence. Of... Subsistence, subsistence, which is like food, clothing, shelter, right? Which it will purchase, which it will purchase or command, which it will purchase or command. Right, there you go, that's it. So the real real price is the real quant quantity of subsistence which it will purchase or demand so the real the real price of something the, the nominal price of something is the, the, the quantity of subsistence which it will purchase or command all right all right so the price of cowhides continuing the price of cowhides as stated in the above account is nearly in the common proportion to that of oxides that of sheepskins is a good deal above it they had probably been sold with the wool that of calfskins, on the contrary, is greatly below it. In countries where the price of cattle is very low, the calves, which are not intended to be reared in order to keep up the stock, are generally killed very young, as was the case in Scotland 20 or 30 years ago. It saves the milk, which their price would not pay for. Their skins, therefore, are commonly good for little. 
The price of raw hides is a good deal lower at present than it was a few years ago, owing probably to the taking off the duty upon seal skins and to the allowing, for a limited time, the importation of raw hides from Ireland and from the plantations duty-free, which was done in 1769. Take the hold of the present century at an average, their real price has probably been somewhat higher than it was in those ancient times. The nature of the commodity renders it not quite so proper for being transported to distant markets as wool. It suffers more by keeping. A salted hide is reckoned inferior to a fresh one and sells for a lower price. This circumstance must necessarily have some tendency to sink the price of raw hides produced in a country which does not manufacture them, but is obliged to export them, and comparatively to raise that of those produced in a country which does manufacture them. It must have some tendency to sink their price in a, in a barbarous and to raise it in an improved and manufacturing country. It must have some, some tendency to sink their price in a barbarous and to raise it in an improved and manufacturing country. It must have had some tendency, therefore, to sink it in ancient and to raise it in modern times, because they're comparing the ancient times as being more barbarous and the present times to being less so. All right. Our tanners, besides, have not been quite so successful as our clothiers in convincing the wisdom of the nation that the safety of the commonwealth depends upon the prosperity of their particular manufacturer. They have, accordingly, been much less favored. The exportation of raw hides has indeed been prohibited and declared a nuisance, but their importation from foreign countries has been subjected to a duty, and though this duty has been taken off from those of Ireland and the plantations for the limited time of five years only, <laughs> limited time only, this is ridiculous, dude. This is, okay, what is this? Price manipulation comes... I like the terms to use that violence and artifice. Violence and artifice, right? So basically, I mean, it's the violence that that you that creates the artifice, right? So they use violence to artificially uh, change the prices of things. The violence and artifice. All right. So continuing. So it says, uh, the, <laughs> they have accordingly been much less favored. The exportation of raw hides has indeed been prohibited and declared a nuisance, but their importation from foreign countries has been subjected to a duty, that's a tax, right? And though this duty has been taken off from those of Ireland and the plantations for a limited time of five years only, yet Ireland has not been confined to the market of Great Britain for the sale of its surplus hides or of those which are not manufactured at home the hides of common cattle have but within these few years been put among the enumerated commodities which the plantations can send nowhere but to the mother country neither has the commerce of ireland been in this case oppressed hitherto in order to support the manufacturers of great britain whatever regulations tend to sink the price either of wool or of raw hides below what it naturally would be must in an improved and cultivated country, have some tendency to raise the price of butcher's meat, the price both of the great and small cattle, which are fed on the improved and cultivated land, must be sufficient to pay the rent which the landlord and the profit which the farmer has reason to expect from the improved and cultivated land. If it is not, they will soon cease to feed them. 
Whatever part of this price, therefore, is not paid by the wool and the hide, must be paid by the carcass. The less there is paid for the one, the more must be paid for the other. In what manner this price is to be divided upon the different parts of the beast is indifferent to the landlords and farmers, provided it is all paid to them. So they don't care how much they get paid from what comes from the animals they raise, as long as they get paid. I don't care. They're like, look, I'm a landlord and a farmer. I got this here. I'm producing this stuff on the land. I don't care. But yeah, I get paid for this. Uh, I mean, how I get paid for it, how you do divvy up what you do with the, the hides and the carcass of the different parts of that beast. Just as long as I get paid. Hey, Betty, how you doing? And uh, let's see. Um, in Wisdom, hello, Colby, Karen Oliver, Marcianne, Orchid Mandala, Orchid Mandala, Jason B., Jason Akashman, and Tavar Young. Hello, thanks for either passing through or sitting a spell. All right, I'm getting through this final piece of, of a book one of the Wealth of Nations. Oh, gosh. I'm almost done. It's interesting, but uh, it's, it's a lot. All right. So let's take a look. Continuing. <clears throat> okay. And the less is paid for the one, the more must be paid for the other. In what manner this price is to be divided upon the different parts of the beast is indifferent to the landlords and farmers, provided it is all paid to them. In an improved and cultivated country, therefore, their interests as landlords and farmers cannot be much affected by such regulations, though their interest as consumers may by the rise in the price of provisions. Hmm. In an improved and cultivated country, therefore, their interest as landlords and farmers cannot be much affected by such regulations, though their interest as consumers may by the rise in the price of provisions. Huh. Yeah, the rise in the price of provisions also. So the regulations, that's like the same thing between what borrowing and saving, right? When interest rates rise, these we can compare interest rates to these regulations here, even though they're separate things, but it's similar because... To them, the, the things don't matter. The regulations don't matter. Um, their interest as landlords and farmers cannot be much affected by such regulations. The regulations being that the um, the duties that were put on things, but they're not they're not affected by that. Except though, their interest as consumers may be by the rise in, by the rise in the price of provisions. Hmm. Right. So what they sell, they don't really care about the regulations, as long as they get what's coming to them, or what they expect is the term that should be used, what they expect. But but when it comes to the provisions or things they need to buy, then they're like, oh, shucks. Why is it so much? Greed, once again. All right. The interest, okay, let's see. It would be quite, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Price of provisions, continuing. It would be quite otherwise, however, in an unimproved and uncultivated country where the greater part of the lands could be applied to no other purpose but the feeding of cattle and where the wool and the hide made the principal part of the value of those cattle. Their interest as landlords and farmers would in this case be very deeply affected by such regulations and their interest as consumers very little. Huh, so it's... It's uh, inversely proportional. The fall in the price of the wool and the hide would not in this case raise the price of the carcass because the greater part of the lands of the country being applicable to no other purpose but the feeding of the cattle, the same number would still continue to be fed. The same quantity of butcher's meat would still come to market. The demand for it would be no greater than before in price. Good. 
So demand will be no greater than before. Its price, therefore, would be the same as before. The whole price of cattle would fall, and along with it both the rent and the profits of all those lands of which cattle was the principal produce, that is, of the greater part of the lands of the country. The perpetual prohibition of the exportation of wool, which is commonly but very falsely ascribed to Edward III, would, in the, ten, in, the, in the then circumstances of the country, have been the most destructive regulation which could have well been thought of. It would not only have reduced the actual value of the greater part of the lands of the kingdom, but by reducing the price of the most important species of small cattle, it would have retarded very much its subsequent improvement. Huh. So, again... We have regulations and human intervention fixing and changing the prices of things. Just like I, I really uh, like how he was just straight up with that. He said, the deg this degradation, both in the real and nominal value of wool, could never have happened in the consequence of the natural course of things. It has accordingly been the effect of violence and artifice. And his examples were, first, the absolute prohibition of exporting wool from England. Secondly, the permission of importing it from Spain duty-free. And thirdly, of the prohibition of exporting it from Ireland to any other country but England. That is crazy. So, exporting wool from England? So, so listen to, can't, they stopped exporting wool from England, from one thing, right? By violence and artifice. So, violently artificially augmenting the prices of, or changing the prices of things by first saying, no, it cannot be exported from England. Secondly, letting it be imported from Spain without taxes, taxation, duty-free. And then third, the prohibition of exporting it from Ireland to any other country but England. So no wool can leave England but it can go into England and Scotland from Spain without any taxes. And then and then Scotland, the only country that Scotland can, or I'm sorry, that Ireland can export to is England. Whoa. Gosh, that's a, that's a complex relationship, but this is, these are things that happen, right? I mean, even today, that's why this book is such a solid... Um, exposition on all things free market capitalism and basically uh, is the underlying waveform of all of the commerce in the entire world. All right, so let's take a look at this. All right, I'm continuing. Uh, its price, therefore, would be the same as before. The whole price of the cattle would fall, and along with it, both the rent and the profit of all those lands of which the cattle was the principal produce, that is, of the greater part of the land of that country. The perpetual prohibition of the exportation of wool, which is commonly but very falsely ascribed to Edward III, would, in the then circumstances of the country, have been the most destructive regulations which could well have been thought of. It, could, it would not only have reduced the actual value of the greater parts of the lands of the kingdom, but by reducing the price of the most important species of small cattle, it would have retarded very much its subsequent improvement. The wool of Scotland fell very considerably in its price in consequence of the union with England. Once again, look at that, politics getting involved. The wool of Scotland fell very considerably in its price 
in consequence of the union with England, by which it was excluded from the great market of Europe and confined to the narrow one of Great Britain. So it was also Scotland, even though before it was said Ireland, right? So the wool of Scotland fell very considerably in its price in consequence with the union of the union with England, by which it was excluded from the great market of Europe and confined to the narrow one of Great Britain. The value of the greater part of the lands in the southern countries or southern counties of Scotland, uh, which are chiefly a sheep country, would have been very deeply affected by this event, had not the rise in the price of butcher's meat fully compensated the fall and the price of wool. Again, we have human intervention over and over and over again. Messing with the price, with the value of things. I'm not even going to say price because price is, is nominal. It has to do with money. And money is artificial. So it's all about the, uh, oh, the value of it. Okay. As the efficacy of human industry in increasing the quantity either of the wool or raw hides is limited, so far as it depends upon the produce of the country where it is exerted, so it is uncertain as far as it depends upon the produce of other countries. It so far depends, not so much upon the quantity which they produce as upon that which they do not manufacture, and upon the restraints which they may or may not think proper to impose upon the exportation of this sort of rude produce. These circumstances, as they are altogether independent of domestic industry, so they necessarily render the efficacy of its efforts more or less uncertain. In multiplying this sort of rude produce, therefore, the efficacy of human industry is not only limited, but uncertain. In multiplying another very important sort of rude produce, the quantity of fish that is brought to market, it is likewise both limited and uncertain. It is limited by the local situation of the country, by the proximity or distance of its different provinces from the sea, by the number of its lakes and rivers, and by what may be called the fertility or barrenness of those seas, lakes, and rivers as to this sort of rude produce. As population increases, as the annual labor of the land and labor of the country grows greater and greater, there come to be more buyers of fish, and those buyers, too, have a greater quantity and variety of other goods, or, what is the same thing, the price of a greater quantity and variety of other goods to buy with. But it will generally be impossible to supply the great and extended market but it will generally be impossible to supply the great and extended market without employing a quantity of labor greater than in proportion to what has been requisite for supplying the narrow and confined one. A market which, from requiring only 1,000, comes to require annually 10,000 tons of fish, can seldom be supplied without employing more than 10 times the quantity of labor which had before been sufficient to supply it. The fish must generally be sought for at a greater distance. Larger vessels must be employed, and more expensive machinery of every kind made use of. The real price of this commodity, therefore, naturally rises in the progress of improvement. It has accordingly done so, I believe, more or less in every country. I don't know. This is looking more and more like the more people there are, the more it takes to, 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 to produce and make things like food stuff. This is like making a good case for population control. At least in a, in a, um, a supply and demand one where 
you know, more and more stock and labor has to be employed just to make more because there's more people, right? So then you have to go ahead and do more. More people, more mouths to feed, more, more work needs to be done. It should seem obvious, right? Think what you want. But I'm not advocating for population control based on the fact that it's just going to cost more and labor and subsistence to do so. No, I advocate for population control because it's the right thing to do. Because how can I rule the earth if there are so many people upon the face of it they cannot be controlled? You earthlings are becoming unruly. All right. Enough Thanos. No, enough channeling Thanos. And back to uh, Wealth of Nations. All right, here we go. Hmm. All right, but it will generally be impossible to supply the great and extended market without employing a quantity of labor greater than in proportion to what had been requisite for supplying the narrow and confined one, a market which, from requiring only 1,000, comes to require annually 10,000 ton of fish, can seldom be supplied without employing more than 10 times the quantity of labor which had before been sufficient to supply it. The fish must generally be sought for at a greater distance. Larger vessels must be employed and more expensive machinery of every kind made use of. The real price of this commodity, therefore, naturally rises in the progress of improvement. It has accordingly done so, I believe, more or less in every country. Though the success of a particular day's fishing may be very uncertain, may be a very uncertain matter yet, the local situation of the country being supposed, the general efficacy of industry in bringing a certain quantity of fish to market, taking the course of a year or of several years together, it may perhaps be thought is certain enough and and it no doubt is so as it depends more however upon the local situation of the country than upon the state of its wealth and industry as upon this account it may in different countries be the same in very different periods of improvement and very different in the same period its connection with the state of improvement is uncertain and it is of this sort of uncertainty that i am speaking that i'm here speaking but you know a lot of this is not so anymore simply because of the fact of uh, what uh, farm fishing, right? Fishing, farm fishing. Let's see. Uh, Betty B says, Agenda 2130 of the UN advocates advocates for it along with total equality of all people. Uh, population control, I believe she's referring to my rant about that. Thank you, Betty. Mm. Okay. So... Continuing here, as it depends more, however, upon the local situation of the country uh, than upon the state of its wealth and industry, as upon this account, it may in different countries be the same in very different periods of improvement and very different in the same period. Its connection with the state of improvement is uncertain, and it is this sort of uncertainty that I am here speaking. In increasing the quantity of the different minerals and metals which are drawn from the bowels of the earth. <coughs> wow. Where's my tea at? 
<clears throat> That's what happens all this yapping and reading. Metals. In increasing the quantity of the different minerals and metals which are drawn from the bowels of the earth, that of the more precious ones particularly, the efficacy of human industry seems not to be limited, but to be altogether uncertain. The quantity of the precious metals which is to be found in any country is not limited by anything in its local situation, such as the fertility or barrenness of its own mines. Those metals frequently abound in countries which possess no mines. Their quantity in every particular country seems to depend upon two different circumstances. First, upon its power of purchasing, upon the state of its industry, upon the annual produce of its land and labor, in consequence of which it can afford to pay, afford to employ a greater or smaller quantity of labor and subsistence in bringing or purchasing such superfluities as gold and silver, either from its own mines or from those of other countries. I mean, that's a long burst. But this is the main point right here, right? Right? It's, it's in consequence of which it can afford to employ a greater or smaller quantity of labor and subsistence in bringing or purchasing such superfluities as gold and silver, either from its own mines or from those of other countries, and secondly, upon the fertility or barrenness of the mines, which may happen at any particular time to supply the commercial world with those metals. God, this is, if only you knew, I'm going to be talking later about just exactly how ridiculous um, the value of metals is and how arbitrary and the real purpose. Like people, oh gosh, uh, it's, it's so uncomplicated. It's, it's, it's actually been done as a control mechanism. That's all that it, it comes down to. That the, that the valuation of metals as they are and used as money and even people calling it God's money, right? And the fact that it has in God we trust stamped on the United States money and then all, all these figures of presidents and world leaders and all that stuff like that. Because remember, back in ancient times, Egypt, Egypt Babylon, Sumeria, um, the, the rulers were claiming their right to be rulers because they were direct descendants of gods or themselves were gods, right? Or something, some, something like that or similar to that. Right? Those, those are the types of things. And so that's where a lot of that comes from. All right, so the quantity of precious metals which is to be found in any country is not limited by anything in its local situation, such as the fertility or barrenness of its own mines. Those metals frequently abound in countries which possess no mines. Their quantity in every particular country seems to depend upon two different circumstances, right? First, upon its power of purchasing, upon the state of its industry, upon the annual produce of its land and labor, in consequence of which it can afford to employ a greater or smaller quantity of, this is the important part, of labor and subsistence in doing what in bringing or purchasing what such superfluities right as what gold and silver either from its own mines or from those of other countries and secondly upon the fertility or barrenness of the mines which it may happen at any particular time to supply the commercial world with those metals the quantity of those metals in the countries most remote from the mines 
must be more or less affected by this fertility or barrenness on account of the easy and cheap transportation of those metals of their small bulk and great value. Small bulk and great value. Once again, supply and demand. There's not a lot of it, but so they value it more. For what reason? Okay, listen to this. Their quantity in China and Indostan must have been more or less affected by the abundance of the mines of America. By the abundance of the mines of America. So far as their quantity in any particular country depends upon the former of those two circumstances, the power of purchasing. Their real price, like that of all other luxuries and superfluities. Hmm. So far as their quantity in any particular country depends upon the former of those two circumstances, the power of purchasing, their real price, like that of all other luxuries and superfluities, is likely to rise with the wealth and improvement of the country and to fall with its poverty and depression. Hmm. The power of purchasing rises with the wealth of the country and falls with its depression, poverty and depression. Gold and silver. Why is that? Because it's man-made valuation and nothing else. People have no idea that, that clean air, fresh, that fresh air, clean water, and, uh, and, and healthy food are the real valuable things in this world. So, so far separated from it. Continuing, countries which have a great quantity of labor and subsistence to spare. See, this is the foundation of it all, right? Listen to what they're about to say, or he's about to write. Centuries, countries which have a great quantity of labor and subsistence to spare can afford to purchase any particular quantity of those metals at the expense of a greater quantity of labor and subsistence than countries which have less to spare. Because it's about labor and subsistence, the people and what they need to live on. So far as their quantity in any particular country depends upon the latter of those two circumstances, the fertility or barrenness of the mines which happens to supply the commercial world, their real price, the real quantity of labor and subsistence which they will purchase or exchange which they, will which they will purchase or exchange for will no doubt sink more or less in proportion to the fertility and rise in proportion to the barrenness of those mines. So again, it will sink more or less in proportion to the fertility, meaning the more supply of the gold and silver, right, the prize will no doubt sink more or less in proportion to the fertility, how much you can get, and rise in proportion to the barrenness, right, meaning the scarcity of those mines. Again, supply and demand all over and over again. But he puts it out and lays it out in great detail. And based on the examples of what he's actually seen and seen and have studied and researched and what's going on at that time and still continues to go on today, almost exactly. But BRICS, B-R-I-C-S, check that out, by the way. Um, I just put up an article. I'm going to actually put that. I read that article last night. It's called BRICS Will Break the Dollar and usher in a return to gold. So here on Colin, I'm going to put that link um, in here as well, even though any, there's not, it's not like there's an army of people on Colin over here, but I'm going to put the link in there anyway, just to link back to it, so that I have it um, in here. So I'll put that in my little, so I have a bunch of links in here already, actually only two, that's good. I'll just link back to myself here, and that's good. 
Yeah, read that one at like five o'clock in the morning or something crazy like that. When I was up in a room uh, with with Derek, called Derek's Cuddle Room. Okay, it was called something ridiculous. But uh, all right, let's continue here. So far as their quantity in any particular country depends upon the latter of those two circumstances, the fertility or barrenness of the mines, which happen to supply the commercial world, their real price, the real quantity of labor and subsistence, which they will purchase or exchange for. Listen to that, right? That's what the real price is, people. The real price is labor and subsistence. People working and the food they need to keep to work just to be alive that's the real price the real price is labor and subsistence that's what real money should be it should be labor and subsistence people doing things for each other and people feeding each other working together to do that that is real value right there more than anything else and that's where it actually comes from all this other stuff silver gold precious stones and all that even though for example they may have other properties that might help with like especially precious stones right precious stones and metals might have some value in that right hey Tavarsan uh, agreed yeah um even though back in ancient times because we know now that there are technological uses like utility uses to precious stones right like like diamonds certain gems have different electromagnetic property or properties right or um what is the uh, the actual word for that? It has to do something with the word for stone, like uh, um, when 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 precious stones have an electro electro electrical properties. So I forget what it's called right now, but but I I wrote um, that everything is either techno magical, has practical utility, aesthetic beauty, and scarcity and demand, right? But some of the things back in the day were used for technology with some people, you know, like Thor said in the in the, the Thor movie that where I come from, magic and science were one and the same, which is really true. If people looked at it like that, it would be completely more understood. Magic and science, same thing. They're not different. They really aren't. And until people come to realize that too, there's a there's a huge disconnect that's going on. All right. My goodness, there's a lot of this reading I better <clears throat> shut my face. Of my personal commentary here as much as I can. It's, hard. it's difficult not to. It's difficult to do that, I mean. Okay. Uh, the fertility or barrenness of the mines, however, which may happen at any particular time to supply the commercial world, is a circumstance which, it is evident, may have no sort of connection with the state of industry in a particular country. I mean, listen to that. It, the, the barrenness of the mines may happen at any particular time to supply the commercial world is a circumstance which it is evident may have no sort of connection with the state of industry in a particular country. And what is the state of industry? It's people's labor and subsistence. It seems even to have no very necessary connection with that of the world in general. Of course fucking not. It's gold and silver, pieces of metal. You can do all kinds of stuff with all kinds of other metals that are easier to get at. And by the way, they're not even that difficult to get at. All, all rocks and and minerals are just equally as difficult to get at. I mean, of course, some more than less than so, but it's not like uh, this is. Uh, I'm excited to get to Babylon's banksters later, because we'll deep, dive deep into more of this stuff. 
which seems to have no very necessary connection with that of the world in general. As arts and commerce indeed gradually spread themselves over a greater and greater part of the earth, the search for new mines being extended over a wider surface may have somewhat a better chance for being successful than when confined within narrower bounds. The discovery of new mines, however, as the old ones come to be gradually exhausted, is a matter of the greatest uncertainty and such as no human skill or industry can ensure. All indications, it is acknowledged, are doubtful, and the actual discovery and successful working of a new mine can alone ascertain the reality of its value or even of its existence. In this search, there seem to be no certain limits either to the possible success or to the possible disappointment of human industry. In the course of a century or two, it is possible that new mines may be discovered more fertile than any that have ever yet been known, and it is just equally possible that the most fertile mine then known may be more barren than any that was wrought before the discovery of the mines of America. Whether the one or the other of those two events may happen to take place is of very little importance to the real wealth and prosperity of the world. Did you hear that again? Whether the one or the other of those two events, what two events are he talking about? It is just equally possible that the most fertile mine then known may be more barren than any that was wrought before the discovery of the mines in America. Right? And what was it for? It is possible that the mines may be discovered, they be more fertile than any that has ever been, been known. And it's equally possible that the most fertile mine then known may be more barren than any that was wrought before the discovery of the mines in America. And he says, whether the one or the other of those two events may happen to take place is of very little importance to the real wealth and prosperity of the world. Rest in case. Because what is the real wealth and the prosperity of the world? It's human interaction and the land that we live on that provides us with food people helping each other and people feeding each other doing things having ex adventures excitement exploring the world and doing great things together right and 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 just having the fuel the healthy fuel in our bodies right fresh air clean water healthy food to be able to do that, yes, co just thank you to uh, um, Tavares Jones. Coexistence and cooperation, exactly. Coexistence and cooperation. Even Adam Smith, the 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 the, the guy whose whose book this this magical spell book that he cast upon the world basically runs the entire Earth, the planet, right? Because I still see it in modern books that were written this year, and oh, and even the article that I read from. Uh, from kitco.com, which is a gold site, right? That talked about bricks. Even are, say, are, are bringing up uh, Says and Keynes, who people who, who are all influenced by Adam Smith and all those roundabouts, just the same people over and over again. Nothing new under the sun. Supply and demand, right? Now, what did Tavares say? Coexistence and cooperation. That's it. Coexistence and cooperation on the land which should not have fences and borders and all this crap around it, right? Coexistence and cooperation. But let me continue. But he says, whether the one or the other of these two events may happen to take place is of very little importance to the real wealth and prosperity of the world, to the real value of the annual produce of the land 
and labor of mankind. See, how did I call it before I even read it? By the way, y'all don't know, um, Wealth of Nations and these other books, I'm reading them cold. I'm not pre-reading any of this stuff. Right, so it's 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 exciting to me to be able to come to these conclusions beforehand um, that I even get to it because that's what you you start to see when you're starting to look at this stuff. So, what's what's the real value of the annual produce of the land and the labor of mankind? The produce of the land and the labor of mankind. That's that's it. So produce produce of the land I'm writing this down because I'm doing a thesis on this and the and the labor of mankind so this is this is going to be make up a huge part portion of my PhD thesis is um, is uh, economics and finance or wealth attraction research being that it's been one of my my websites that have been online for 16 years right so um in keeping with that on exercising your mind i might as well go with that idea um, something that i'm very much interested in which i say that great health is the truest of all wealth and how does that come to us right well Tavares put it very very succinctly here coexistence and cooperation right and like i've been looking here it says produce of the land and the labor of mankind i mean how else can we do anything but see the pro see the produce of the land and the labor of mankind has been controlled by putting things in its way like silver gold and fiat currencies the money the paper dollars and things like that which are which are are uh, are um, produced and distributed by private banks that that basically use debt as money because they're is, they're essentially issuing uh, money at interest so they're they're giving lending people money which is really just saying, here's your power to uh, be able to get some of the, the produce of the land and the labor of other people. Um, that's what this means. But 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 you're getting it for, uh, and you have to pay it back for more than it's actually worth, more than the real price. And that's how they get the, the, the money from people, is by issuing money as debt. Debt is money. It's ridiculous. Fiat currency. That's why BRICS is in existence, because everybody wants to get away from this whole private banking nonsense, which is the reason why many people were killed throughout history and um, why countries have been toppled and so on and so forth. You know, United States, you have, uh, what did Abraham Lincoln want to do? Greenback, shot in the head. Uh, JFK, silver, a silver certificate, shot in the head. Um, what about all the way back to the beginning? Uh, Thomas Jefferson wanted to do something similar, tried to get killed, to try to kill him, right? Um, who else? who else? Who else did that? Like anybody who tries to do that. Um, oil, one Bretton Woods Agreement, 1971, taken off the gold standard. Right, terrorists all of a sudden. Right, all, all of the Arabic nations are all terrorists because they have oil. Right. What was Ari Fleischer, the press secretary, at that one time when they were doing Operation Iraqi Liberation? It was called at once O I L Operation Iraqi Liberation. You don't think that's a little funny? And then people started to point it out, and they changed it to Operation Iraqi Freedom. But I digress, and I need to get back to the book because I need to finish this thing. You know, I'm, I'm wearing a, a freaking tinfoil hat over here. All right. So let's see. Uh, though the success of a particular day's fishing, da 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 da, may be uncertain. What the hell am I looking at? How do I get back to fish? Um, did I get to fish? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
the labor of mankind. Bulk, metal, value, silver. There we go. All right, so here I am. All right, so the, all right, so very little importance to the real value of the annual produce of the land and the labor of mankind. Its nominal value, the quantity of gold and silver by which this annual produce could be expressed or represented. See, look at that nominal value, the quantity of gold and silver by which this annual produce could be expressed or represented. That's what the nominal value is. See, it's supposed to be represented by it. It's not itself. Nominal value. Oh, gosh. Nominal value is... Uh, the quantity of gold and silver by which produce and labor, I'm going to put, could be expressed or represented. Nominal value is the quantity, the quantity, the quantity of gold and silver, right? By which the produce, by which the produce is expressed, um, by which this annual produce, by which this annual produce, which this annual produce uh, could be expressed or represented, could be expressed or represented. See, I got to write these things down because even though I have intuition about the ideas, I need to write them down because other people uh, usually put them in better terms than I ever could. And then I can use them to repeat, convey my ideas later on. Hello, Sudoku. All right, um, continuing. So it's nominal value, the quantity of gold and silver by which this annual produce could be expressed or represented would no doubt be very different, but it's real value. The real quantity of labor which it could purchase or command would be precisely the same. Okay, what? The nominal value would no doubt be very different, but its real value, the real quantity of labor which it could purchase or command would be precisely the same. And he's talking about the produce of the land, right? So the real value of the annual produce of the land and the labor of mankind, its nominal value. We're talking about the quantity of gold and silver by which this annual produce right, of the land could be expressed or represented would no doubt be very different. But its real value, the real quantity of labor which it could produce or command, that's the the produce of the land would be precisely the same. A shilling might in the one case represent no more labor than a penny does at present, and a penny in the other might represent as much as a shilling does now. But in the one case, he who had a shilling in his pocket would be no richer than he who has a shilling, a penny at present, and in the other, he who had a penny would be just as rich as he who has a shilling now. The cheapness and abundance of gold and silver plate would be the sole advantage which the world could derive from one event 
and the dearness and scarcity of those trifling superfluities, the only inconveniency it could suffer from the other. What? The cheapness and abundance of gold and silver plate would be the sole advantage which the world could derive from the one event. And the dearness and scarcity of those trifling superfluities, the only inconveniency it could suffer from the other. This is what it's all, it's, it's again about greed. It's talking about superfluity, like just fashion, beauty, like put gildings, jewelry, like showing it off. This is the only thing. All right, I get finishing up here. We're almost done. This is the, the next part of, of uh, section three, which is called the third sort. And then after that is, is going to be, so this next part is called the effects of the progress of improvement upon the real price of manufacturers. What am I, an hour in here? All right, an hour and four minutes. And then finally, it's the conclusion of the chapter, which will wrap it up. And, that's, and then book two is going to be of the nature, accumulation, and employment of stock. That's going to be quite enlightening, I'm sure. So here we go. You've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, War, the Third Sort, <clears throat> and continuing. Effects of the progress of improvement upon the real price of manufacturers. It is the natural effect of improvement, however, to diminish gradually the real price of almost all manufacturers. Hmm. That of the manufacturing workmanship diminishes, perhaps, in all of them without exception. In consequence of better machinery, of greater dexterity, and of a more proper division and distribution of work, all of which are the natural effects of improvement, a much smaller quantity of labor becomes requisite for ex executing any particular piece of work, and though, in consequence of the flourishing circumstances of the society, the real price of labor should rise very considerably, yet the great diminution of the quantity will generally much more than compensate the greatest rise in which can happen in the price. So this is also what some people are, are scared of with AI and other technologies, right? They're, they're concerned about this. The natural effect of improvement, however, to diminish gradually the real price of almost all manufacturers, like all things that are made. That of the manufacturing workmanship diminishes, perhaps, in all of them without exception. Why? In consequence of better machinery, computers, AI, of greater dexterity, machinery, AI, and of a more proper division and distribution of work, right? Doling it out to either machines and, and or AI or machines and AI combination, right? This is what people are afraid of, but they shouldn't be. All of which are natural effects of improvement. A much smaller quantity of labor becomes requisite so less work, less people's work is needed for executing any particular piece of work. And though, in consequence of the flourishing circumstances of the society, the real price of labor should rise very considerably, yet the great diminution of the quantity will generally much more than compensate the greatest rise which can happen in the price. So there are indeed a few manufacturers in which the necessary rise in the real price of rude materials will more than compensate all the advantages which improvement can introduce into the execution of the work. In carpenters' and joiners' work, and in the coarser sort of cabinet work, 
the necessary rise in the real price of barren timber in consequence of the improvement of land will more than compensate all the advantages which can be derived from the best machinery, the greatest dexterity, and the most proper division and distribution of work. But in all cases in which the real price of the rude materials either does not rise at all or does not rise very much, that of the manufactured commodity sinks very considerably. The diminution of price has, in the course of the present and preceding century, been most remarkable in those manufactures of which the materials are the coarser metals. Coarser metals. Once again, the diminution of price has, in the course of the present and preceding century, been most remarkable in those manufactures of which the materials are the coarser metals. Price has gone down in the present and preceding century most remarkably in the making of things with coarse metals. A better movement of a watch than about the middle of the last century could have been bought for 20 pounds. May now perhaps be had for 20 shillings. Wow, that's a big difference. A better movement of a watch, so a, good, a really good watch, than about the middle of the last century could have been bought for 20 pounds, may now perhaps be had for 20 shillings. That's a lot less. In the work of cutlers and locksmiths, in all the toys which are made of the coarser metals, and in all those goods which are commonly known by the name of Birmingham and Sheffield, where, huh, those are brand names I'm supposing at the time, um, and of all the goods commonly known by the name of Birmingham and Sheffield, where, there has been, oh, is that Birmingham? Is that the coat factory, right? Is the name of it? I, I don't know. I forget. All right. Um, okay, so in the work of cutlers and locksmiths, in all the toys which are made of the coarser metals, and in all those goods which are commonly known by the name of Birmingham and Sheffield Ware, there has been, during the same period, a very great reduction of price, though not altogether so great as in watchwork. It has, however, been sufficient to astonish the workmen of every other part of Europe who in many cases acknowledge that they can produce no work of equal goodness for double or even triple the price. Let's see. Oh, Burlington. Okay, so it's Burlington. I was, to see. I was thinking, right? Burlington Coat Factory. They, they just have Burlington now. Birmingham is in Alabama. <laughs> right? All right. Thank you for that. Um, all right, so... It has, however, been sufficient to astonish the workmen of every other part of Europe, who in many cases acknowledge that they can produce no work of equal goodness for double or even triple the price. They can produce no work of equal goodness for double or even triple the price. It has been sufficient to astonish the workmen of every other part of Europe, who in many cases acknowledge that they can produce no work of equal goodness for double or even triple the price. There are perhaps no manufactures in which the division of labor can be carried further, or in which the machinery employed admits of a greater variety of improvements than those of which the materials are the coarser metals. Yes, uh, 1776, man, uh, Wealth of Nations, it basically runs the whole world um, of economics. I mean, the, the stuff in this book is still employed today in one form or another, whether it's in pure free market capitalism, which is usually good for most people and everyone, or whether it's in crony capitalism or corporate capitalism or all the greedy, evil shit that happens with capitalism by manipulation, through, like mainly by uh, private banks. Um, 
but uh, it's it's the foundation of all of it to ours. So in the clothing manufacture, there has during the same period been no such sensible reduction of price. The price of superfine cloth, I have been assured, on the contrary, has within these five and twenty or thirty years risen somewhat in proportion to its quality, owing, it was said, to a considerable rise in the price of the material, which consists altogether of Spanish wool. That of the Yorkshire cloth, which is made altogether of English wool, is said, indeed, during the course of the present century, to have fallen a good deal in proportion to its quality. Quality, however, is so very disputable a matter that I look upon all information of this kind as somewhat uncertain. <laughs> this is, I mean, yeah. That of Yorkshire cloth, which is made altogether of English wool, is said indeed during the course of the present century to have fallen a good deal in proportion to its quality. Quality, however, so very disputable a manner, isn't it? Right? People argue over quality all the time that I look upon all information of this kind as somewhat uncertain. Um, yeah, facts. In the clothing manufacture, the division of labor is nearly the same now as it was a century ago, and the machinery employed is not very different. There may, however, have been some small improvement in both, which may have occasioned some reduction of price. But the reduction will appear much more sensible and undeniable if we compare the price of this manufacture in the present times with that with what it was in a much remoter period toward the end of the 15th century when the labor was probably much less divided and the machinery employed much more imperfect than it is at present. In 1487, being the fourth, uh, the fourth year, I guess, the fourth of, the, of Henry II, I mean the seventh, it was enacted that whosoever shall sell by retail a broad yard of the finest scarlet grained or of other grain cloth of the finest making above 16 shillings shall forfeit 40 shillings for every yard so sold. But, and he's taxing. 16 shillings, therefore, containing the same, about the same quantity of silver as a 4 and 20 shillings of our, our present money was at the time reckoned not an unreasonable price for a yard of the finest cloth. And as this is a sumptuary law, such cloth, it is probable, had usually been sold somewhat dearer or more expensive. Again, the word dearer is expensive for those who haven't been here the whole time. They use different language. Okay, a guinea may be reckoned the highest price in the present times, even though the quality of the cloths, therefore, should be supposed equal and that of the present time is most probably much superior. Yet even upon this supposition, the money price of the finest cloth appears to have been considerably reduced since the end of the 15th century, but its real price has been much more reduced. Six shillings and eight pence was then, and long afterwards reckoned the average price of a quarter of wheat. Huh. I'm, I'm just taking notes of the price. Six shillings and eight pence was then, and long afterwards reckoned the average price of a quarter of wheat. 16 shillings, therefore, was the price of two quarters and more than three bushels of wheat. Valuing a quarter of wheat in the present times at eight and twenty shillings, the real price of yard of fine cloth must in those times have been equal to at least three pounds, six shillings, and six pence of our present money. The man who bought it must have parted with the command of a quantity of labor and subsistence equal to what some would purchase in the present times. You, if, if you're listening to this, you can actually see how ridiculous 
the, that prices of things are in terms of money and what, what's being done with it. And he comes to it over and over again talking about the truth, though. I mean, because listen, he's, like, he's given all these prices. It was worth this then, and it is this now, and, and it's just changing up and down, this, that, right? And But but what he says, the man who bought it must have parted with the command of what? A quantity of labor and subsistence equal to what that sum would purchase in the present time. It always comes back to that, labor and subsistence, the produce of the land and the labor of mankind. As Tavar Shon put it, right, coexistence and cooperation right, with people. Thanks again for uh, sharing your thoughts as well, Tavares, while you're here. And let's see, who else popped in the room here? Adara with the dashes, hello. Cassandra, Deanne, Deja, Tevis, Terry, hello. Joshua Blattman, Lois Hansen, hello. What's up, Doobie? Sudoku, Anthony Bonner, Michael J., Marcy Ann, Truly, Julie, what's up, Colby, again, hello. Karen Oliver, Orchid Mandala, Jason B., Jason Akashman, and uh, Tavares Young, thanks again for uh, sitting the spell. All right, so... Continuing, and we're almost, yes, almost done. I mean, as much as I enjoy learning this and reading it, it's uh, this has been a long, long chapter, and I don't even want to look ahead to see what uh, part two of this book is going to look like. But this is only part of the way through here. And this book is uh, 508 pages, 507 pages, and I'm only on 176. All right, continuing. The reduction in the real price of the coarse manufacture, though considerable, has not been so great as that of the fine. In 1463, being the third year of Edward IV, it was enacted that no servant in husbandry, nor common laborer, nor servant to any artificer inhabiting out of a city or burg, shall use or wear in their clothing any cloth above two shillings the broad yard. What the fuck? He's restricting the kind of clothes that a common laborer can wear. It can't, it can't be above two shillings the broad yard. This is where fashion comes in, ladies and gentlemen, right? You're dressing fashionably to show that you have more money. Ridiculous. All right, but he's he's actually restricting it by, uh, by a law. All right, this is this is crazy. In the third year of Edward the Fourth, two shillings contained very nearly the same quantity of silver as four of our present money. That's crazy. So they've debased the money so much. See, that's again, oh man, it's that's why you you wonder why this is this is inflation, right? In in the making right there because of of the the quantity of the actual metal and but th and this is actually even a secondary inflation because it's not even the value, the real price. It's not even actually the produce of the land itself and the labor of mankind. I mean, of course, yes, you can say precious metals and money comes from the land, but come on, what use value do they have, really? Right? Yeah, can't have the peasants walking around looking as good as the rich, right? <laughs> but but now we can, right? Right, uh, Tavares? Um, people do it now, and that's the whole thing with people trying to keep up with the Joneses, right? They're trying to get the cars and the jewelry and all the stuff that they can have so they can look like they're doing well. But when they when they should actually be saving their money for investments or other things that will make their lives better than just trying to look the part, it's kind of ridiculous. People are keeping themselves poor because of laws like this, right? 
So in the third year of Edward IV, two shillings contained very nearly the same quantity of silver as four of our present money. But the Yorkshire cloth, which is now sold at four shillings a yard, is probably much superior to any that was then made for the wearing of the very poorest order of common servants. Even the money price of their clothing, therefore, may, in proportion to the quality, be somewhat cheaper in the present than it was in those ancient times. The real price is certainly a good deal cheaper. Right? Remember, the real price is the produce of the land and labor of the people. Ten pence was then reckoned what is called the moderate and reasonable price of a bushel of wheat. Two shillings, therefore, was the price of two bushels and near two pecks of wheat, which in the present times, at three shillings and six pence the bushel, would be worth eight shillings and nine pence. For a yard of this cloth, the poor servant must have parted with the power of purchasing a quantity of subsistence equal to what eight shillings and nine pence would purchase in the present times. That is so crazy. This is a sumptuary law too, restraining the luxury and extravagance of the poor. Did you see they put it into a law? But then there's still the situation of people being talked down on for not. You mean, uh, oh, you mean for, for not spending and buying brand names? Yeah, well, it happens all the time. People have tried to do it to me, but when you get to a certain place, you don't, uh, that kind of stuff doesn't, doesn't bug you because you know what's real and true. There's ignorant people everywhere. I remember once, for example, I did this basketball tournament in, uh, in, in uh, what you call it, in um, in Venice or in in uh, Santa Monica, California, where uh, John Sally was there, and it was called um, it was called uh, and it was like one of those street ball tournaments, but I forget what it was. But anyway, I was working directly for the run of the show, um, and Nike was one of the sponsors of the event. Anyway, I had gotten um, which I would, which I'd never bought myself, but Nike gave me these shoes and sweatpants and a top that I had to wear while I was running the show doing the, oh, it's called Nike Battlegrounds is what it was. So it was Nike Battlegrounds in, in California. I forget what year it is right now, but I think about it. I'm sure I'll come to it. Um, but it was like around maybe 2002, 2003, 2004, somewhere around there. And, um, and anyway, I, I then started going on a college campus. I started taking classes um, to do some pre-med stuff and some other classes. And I was wearing the shoes that, that, that Nike, mind you, gave me. And this one kid on the campus was like, oh, look at them shoes. What, those, those air, they ain't got no air. He's like, what kind of Nike's them is? And they were laughing at him because they were vintage Nikes and they didn't know, right? They, they, hadn't, they didn't see them before. Little did they know that they were issued directly to me by Nike. But see, the ignorance right of people and how they they think that you're supposed to be wearing certain things and, and things like that and how they just spend all of their money that they could be using for much better things like what what is it for healthy food for one thing right to invest in maybe a business or something that's actually going to return something that's worthwhile but no they got to wear the their, their nike airs or whatever other craziness that that they're that people have probably made fun of them for, and so therefore they're passing that on, right, to somebody else. Because people have no thinking power of themselves for the most part. That's my harshness to people. That's what I, I, I get down on people for, is for being brainwashed and not seeing how ridiculously the brainwashing is. It's like you don't see how, how ridiculous 
that is, the things that are being supported by you, and then and then wonder why, you know, it's it's all of us that continue things as they are. But let me not get off of this. I'm going to read Adam Smith until I get this done because um, <clears throat> there's not much left. But some good points there, right? So, because what he says, for a yard of this cloth, the poor servant must have parted with the power of purchasing a quantity of subsistence, like his food, right, or clothing and shelter, equal to what eight shillings and nine pence would purchase in the present time. This is a sumptuary law, too, restraining the luxury and extravagance of the poor. So what is this word sumptuary? Does anybody know? I'm going to look it up anyway on, uh, on Mr. and Mrs. Google's. Mr. and Mrs. Googles, can you please tell me what is the sumptuary word? Sumptuary. A sumptuary war. I'm pretty sure it's not a good word. I'm pretty sure he's he's saying that it's some... Oh, look. All I did was put the word sumptuary in a... Sumptuary law. The term denotes regulations. Oh, that's, that's an exact definition. The term denotes regulations restricting extravagance in food, drink, dress, and household equipment usually on religious or moral grounds. Wow. In Shakespeare's England, those wearing clothes adjudged to be above their station were subject to fines or imprisonment under sumptuary laws. What the hell? Decorative items on clothing were forbidden to be worn unless the wearer had a personal fortune of 200 pounds or more. Holy shizer. In Wikipedia, the sumptuary laws, his Islamic sumptuary laws are based upon teachings found in the Quran and Hadith. Okay, that's, you know what, I'm not looking at that. We're talking about, wow, you could be imprisoned or fined. Those wearing clothes adjudged to be above their station were subject to fines or imprisonment? Yo. What the proclamations against excess apparel? <laughs> this is crazy. Oh my God. The decades. There's pro- proclamations against excess apparel. Okay, I'm, I'm done. That's just, that's hilarious. Oh my gosh. That is so hilarious. <clears throat> All right. Continuing. All right, so, yeah, this is a sumptuary law to restraining the luxury and extravagance of the poor. Their clothing, therefore, had commonly been much more expensive. The same order of people are, by the same law, prohibited from wearing hose, of which the price should exceed 14 pence to pair, equal to about 8 and 20 pence of our present money. Hmm. But 14 pence was in those times the price of a bushel and near two pecks of wheat, which in the present times at three, six, at three and six pence the bushel would cost five shillings and three pence. Hmm. We should in the present times consider this as a very high price for a pair of stockings to a servant of the poorest and lowest order. He must, however, in those times have paid what was really equivalent to this price for them. In the time of Edward IV, the art of knitting stockings was probably not known in any part of Europe. Their holes were made of a common cloth, which may have been one of the causes of their dearness. 
expensiveness. The first person that wore stockings in England is said to have been Queen Elizabeth. She received them as a present from the Spanish ambassador. Both in the coarse and in the fine woolen manufacture, the machinery employed was much more imperfect in those ancient than it is in the present times. It has since received three very capital improvements, besides, probably, many smaller ones of which it may be difficult to ascertain the number or importance. The three capital improvements are, first, the exchange of the rock and spindle for the spinning wheel, which, with the same quantity of labor, will perform more than double the quantity of work. Secondly, the use of very, of several very ingenious machines which facilitate and abridge in still greater proportion the winding and the worsted and woolen yarns, or the proper arrangement of the warp and woof before they are put into the loom, an operation which, previous to the invention of those machines, must have been extremely tedious and troublesome. All right. Whoever's in here with this jackassness... I'm about to, uh, about to get banned every single one of you. Stop distracting me. Hello, Derek. Who is this Carter person? Hey, get out of here. Fuckery. <laughs> Betty B says, uh, makes me want to dress as the queen at the next Ren Fair, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah, right, right, uh, Derek? I wonder if it's Brady, these trolls, troll farm. All right. Okay, so let's see. Yes, yes, folks on Wisdom, people get kicked out of rooms or banned from certain features uh, when they come in do uh, jackassery over here because there's a lot of it it's it can be fun but it's annoying all right continuing secondly the use of of uh several very ingenious machines which facilitate and abridge in still greater proportion the winding of the worsted and woolen yarn or the proper arrangement of the warp and woof before they are put into the loom, an operation which, previous to the invention of those machines, must have been extremely tedious and troublesome. Thirdly, the employment of the fulling mill for thickening the cloth instead of treading it in water. Neither wines nor water mills of any kind were known in England so early as the beginning of the 16th century, nor, so far as I know, in any other part of Europe north of the Alps. They had been introduced into Italy sometime before. Hmm. All right. The consideration of these circumstances may, perhaps, in some measure, explain to us why the real price both of the coarse and of the fine manufacture was so much higher in those ancient times than it is in the present times. It cost a greater quantity of labor to bring the goods to market. When they were brought thither, therefore, they must have purchased or exchanged for the price of a greater quantity. That's right. They may have purchased or exchanged for the price of a greater quantity. Yeah, so you can get, they, it, in other words, it commanded more produce from the land or labor of mankind than it did for because it was harder to make, right? So the coarse manufacture probably was in ancient times carried on in England in the same manner as it has as it always has been in countries where arts and manufacturers are in their infancy. It was probably 
a household manufacture, which in in which every different part of the work was occasionally performed by all the different members of almost every private family, but so as to be their work only when they had nothing else to do and not to be the principal business from which any of them derived the greater part of their subsistence. Again, always going back to subsistence, right? The food, the produce of the land. The work which is performed in this manner, it has already been observed, comes always much cheaper to market than that which is the principal or sole fund of the workman's subsistence. The fine manufacture, on the other hand, was not in those times carried on in England, but in the rich and commercial country of Flanders, and it was probably conducted then in the same manner as now by people who derived the whole or the principal part of their subsistence from it. It was besides a foreign manufacturer and must have paid some duty, the ancient custom of tonnage and poundage at least to the king. This duty indeed would not probably be very great. It was not then the policy of Europe to restrain by high duties the importation of foreign manufactures, but rather to encourage it in order that merchants might be enabled to supply at as easy a rate as possible the great men with the conveniences and luxuries which they wanted, and which the industry of their own country could not afford them. The consideration of these circumstances may perhaps in some measure explain to us why, in those ancient times, the real price of the coarse manufacture was, in proportion to that of the fine, so much lower than in the present times. Hmm. And finally, the conclusion of this long chapter, but makes sense, right? This, uh, that before they didn't be, uh, it wasn't the policy of Europe to restrain by high duties, by high taxes, the importation of foreign manufacturers, right? But rather to encourage it in order that merchants, right, in Europe might be enabled to supply, sell, at as easy a rate, as, as cheaply and expensively as possible, the great men, rich people, with the conveniences and luxuries, bullshit, which they wanted, and which the industry of their own country could not afford. Right? <clears throat> Conclusion of the chapter. I shall conclude this very long chapter. Yes, you're right, it's a very long chapter, bro. What the hell? I shall conclude this very long chapter with observing that every improvement in the circumstance of the society tends either directly or indirectly to raise the real rent of land, to increase the real wealth of the landlord, his power of purchasing the labor or the produce of the labor of other people. So the every improvement in the circumstances of society tends either directly or indirectly to raise the real rent of the land, meaning the landlords can make more money, which increases the real wealth of the landlord, his power of purchasing the labor or the produce of the labor of other people. The extension of improvement and cultivation tends to raise it directly. The landlord's share of the produce necessarily increases with the increase of the produce. The rise in the real price of those parts of the rude produce of land, which is the first effect of extended improvement and cultivation, and afterwards the cause of their being still further extended, the rise in the price of cattle, for example, tends to to raise the rent of land directly and in still greater proportion. 
The real value of the landlord's share is real command of the labor of the people, of other people, not only rises with the real value of the produce, but the proportion of his share to the whole produce rises with it. But this actually makes more sense and is more closely related to anything that could be, right? Because, except for the fact that somebody put a fence around it in the first place, but, right? His real command of the labor of other people not only rises with the real value of the produce, right, what is produced from the land, but the proportion of his share to the whole produce rises with it. That produce, after the rise in its real price, requires no more labor to collect it than before. A smaller proportion of it will, therefore, be sufficient to replace with the ordinary profit the stock which employs that labor. A greater proportion of it must, consequently, belong to the landlord. All those improvements in the productive powers of labor, which tend directly to re, excuse me, all those improvements in the productive powers of labor, which tend directly re, to reduce the real price of manufacturers, tend indirectly to raise the real rent of land. The landlord exchanges that part of his rude produce, which is over and above his own consumption, or what comes to the same thing, the price of that part of it, for manufactured produce. Whatever reduces the real price of the latter raises that of the former. An equal quantity of the former becomes thereby equivalent to a greater quantity of the latter, and the landlord is enabled to purchase a greater quantity of the conveniences, ornaments, or luxuries which he has occasion for. This is what people is gold and silver once again for the most part everything comes down to conveniences ornaments and luxuries continuing every increase in the real wealth of the society every increase in the quantity of useful labor employed within it tends indirectly to raise the real rent of land a certain proportion of this labor naturally goes to the land a greater number of men and cattle are employed in its cultivation. The produce increases with the increase of the stock, which is thus employed in raising it, and the rent increases with the produce. The contrary circumstances, the neglect of cultivation and improvement, the fall of the in the real price of any part of the rude produce of land, the, the rise in the real price of manufacturers from the decay of manufacturing art and industry, the declension of the real wealth of the society all tend, on the other hand, to lower the real rent of land, to reduce the real wealth of the landlord, to diminish his power of purchasing either the labor or the produce of the labor of other people. The whole annual produce of the land and labor of every country, or what comes to the same thing, the whole price of that annual produce naturally divides itself, it has already been observed, into three parts. The rent of land, the wages of labor, and the profits of stock, and constitutes a revenue to three different orders of people, to those who live by rent, to those who live by wages, and to those who live by profit. These are the three great original and constituent orders of every civilized society, from whose revenue that of every other order is ultimately derived. The interest of the first of those three great orders, it appears from what has just now said, been just now said, is strictly and inseparably connected with the general interest of that society. 
Hmm. Whatever either promotes or obstructs, whatever either one promotes or obstructs the one, necessarily promotes or obstructs the other. When the public deliberates concerning any regulation of commerce or police, the proprietor of land never can mislead it with a view to promote the interest of their own particular order, at least if they have any tolerable knowledge of that interest. They are indeed too often defective in this tolerable knowledge. They are the only one of the three orders whose revenue costs them neither labor nor care, but comes to them, as it were, of its own accord and independent of any plan or project of their own. That indolence, which is the natural effect of the ease and security of their situation, renders them too often not only ignorant, but incapable of that application of mind which is necessary in order to foresee and understand the consequences of any public regulation. Damn, people are, <clears throat> are uh, getting distracted. That they, it's the same thing that's happening now, right? All different things distract people in news, who's playing this sport, what Kardashian, this, that, da, da. And so that they, they are so incapable of application of mind, which is necessary in order to foresee and understand the consequence of any public regulation. Good Lord, they've been doing it way back in the day. Oh, I mean, when the public deliberates concerning any regulation of commerce or police, the proprietor of land never can mislead it with a view to promote the interest of their own particular order, at least if they have any tolerable knowledge of that interest. They are, indeed, too often defective in this tolerable knowledge. They are the only one of the three orders whose revenue costs them neither labor nor care, but comes to them, as it were, of its own accord and independent of any plan or project of their own. Talking about the, again, right, the, the interest of the first of those great, those three great orders, which is what, right? Rent, wages, profit. So you have landlords, owners, I'm so Rent is landlords, wages are the workers, and profit comes from the owners of the business, the companies, right? And so the first of those great orders, right? They are indeed too often defective in this tolerable knowledge. They are the only one of the three orders whose revenue costs them neither labor nor care, but comes to them, as it were, of its own accord and independent of any plan or product of their own. Just because they just have the land, right? They put a fence around it so they can say, hey, pay me this rent and you can do whatever you want, right? It's 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 independent plan or project of somebody else that does the work. And that indolence, which is the natural effect of the ease and security of their situation, renders them too often not only ignorant, but incapable of that application of mind which is necessary in order to foresee and understand the consequences of any public regulation. The interest of the second order, that of those who live by wages, is as strictly connected with the interest of the society as that of the first. The wages of the laborer, it has already been shown, are never so high as when the demand for labor is continually rising or when the quantity employed is every year increasing considerably. When this real wealth of the society becomes stationary, his wages are soon reduced to what is hardly enough to enable him to bring up a family or to continue the race of laborers. 
When the society declines, they fall even below this. The order of proprietors may, perhaps, gain more by the prosperity of the society than that of the laborers. But there is no order that suffers so cruelly from this decline. But, through, but though the interest of the laborer is strictly connected with that of the society, he is incapable either of comprehending that interest or of understanding its connection with his own. Again, this is a warning. This is a, a really dire warning, right? Of people being laborers and you having no idea how connected you are to the society and, and what your part actually is, that there can be no other wealth other than the labor of mankind, that's you, me, and other people, and the produce of the land, that we are the real wealth, that your great health is the truest of all wealth, the hell is going on in my room on wisdom all right hold on for a second dude the craziest thing is happening in my wisdom room it's like somehow i'm in somebody else's room right now what the hell is going on here wisdom you're messing up right now do i have to end this dude my whole recording thank you wisdom ruined all right i'm gonna have to end it what just happened it's ridiculous all right so um what that was the stupidest thing I've ever seen. That my own room on Wisdom just got uh, hijacked into somebody else, some other room. And the person is not even there. What the hell was that? All right. I'm going to finish this. All right. Oh my God. What is the name of this thing? I'm just going to do this as conclusion. Yeah, this is going to be conclusion to this chapter. All right. So bear with me. Freaking asinine technology. All right. Got to do this one more time. Wealth attraction research on wisdom. Going to put my little war thing over here. And. Uh, <clears throat> Um, I'm just going to put 11 conclusion because that's what this is. What a bunch of crap, dude. What a, what a time right at the end of my uh, talk for it to just crash over on Wisdom and throw me into another room. All right, and this is uh, exercisingyourmind.com. See, this is, this, that's the kind of shit right there. That makes me not want to use wisdom to do any recording and just go straight onto Spreaker, right? And just forget it all together. Kind of make nonsense like that. Like, how does that, how does that even make any sense? All right. Well, I, I'm back on wisdom. Uh, Wealth Attraction Research, W A R 11 Conclusion, exercisingyourmind.com. Um, 
because of some ridiculous crash that happened on Wisdom that threw me into somebody else's room and I had to hear somebody's creepy voice in my ear that's not even live on Wisdom right now. So, Wisdom, get your shit together. I finished reading my book over here. My goodness, what the hell was that all about? All right, so I'm going to start this again. I, I shall... I shall conclude this very long chapter with observing that every improvement in the circumstance of the society tends either directly or indirectly to raise the real rent of the land, to increase the real wealth of the landlord, his power of purchasing the labor or the produce of the labor of other people. The extension of improvement and cultivation tends to raise it directly. The landlord's share of the produce necessarily increases with the increase of the produce. That rise in the real price of those parts of the rude produce of land, which is first the effect of extended improvement and cultivation, and afterwards the cause of their being still further extended, the rise in the price of the cattle, for example, tends to, to raise the rent of land directly and in still greater proportion. The real value of the landlord's share his real command of labor of other people not only rises with the real value of produce, but the proportion of his share to the whole produce rises with it. That produce, after the rise in its real price, requires no more labor to collect it than before. A smaller proportion of it will, therefore, be sufficient to replace, with the ordinary profit, the stock which employs that labor. A greater proportion of it must, consequently, belong to the landlord. All those improvements in the productive powers of labor, which tend directly reduce the real price of manufacturers, tend indirectly to raise the real rent of land. The landlord exchanges that part of his rude produce, which is over and above his own consumption, or what comes to the same thing, the price of that part of it for manufactured produce, right? The landlord exchanges that part of his rude produce, which is over and above his own consumption, or what comes to the same thing, the price of that part of it, right, for manufactured produce. Whatever reduces the real price of the latter, the real price of the rude produce, raises the price of the former, the manufactured produce, right? An equal quantity of, of rude produce becomes thereby equivalent to a greater quantity of, of manufactured produce. And the landlord is enabled to purchase a greater quantity of the conveniences, ornaments, or luxuries which he has occasion for. Again, that's what it's all about. The luxuries. Hello, Jenny. How you doing over there on listening on wisdom? Oh, cool. Good. So, Jenny, you did it. I see you uh, You went and got the, uh, you added your stuff so you have um, the purple badge now, right? The purple check mark means you can create talks and wisdom whenever you like. Yeah, at least that's what it says, right? So hopefully you'll be able to, I think. Um, but I'm glad that you went ahead and, and got that. So um, step in the right direction. All right, continuing here. Right, so this is what it's all about here. An equal quantity of the former becomes thereby equivalent to a greater quantity of the latter. And the landlord is enabled to purchase a greater quantity of the conveniences, ornaments, or luxuries which he has occasion for. Crazy, right? So... Every increase in the real wealth of the society, every increase in the quantity of useful labor employed within it, tends indirectly to raise the real rent of land. A certain proportion of this labor naturally goes to the land. A greater number of men and cattle are employed in its cultivation. The produce increases with the increases of the stock, and which is thus employed in raising it, and the rent increases with the produce. 
the contrary circumstances, the neglect of cultivation and improvement, the fall in the real price of any part of the rude produce of land, the rise in the real price of manufacturers from the decay of manufacturing art and industry, the declension of the real wealth of the society, all tend, on the other hand, to lower the real rent of land, to reduce the real wealth of the landlord, to diminish his power of purchasing either the labor or the produce of the labor of other people. Because that's what it's all about. That's what they're doing, right? The produce of the labor of other people. The labor and the produce of the labor of other people. That's what they're looking for, to buy with their money. The whole annual produce of the land and labor of every country, or what comes to the same thing, the whole price of that annual produce naturally divides itself. It has already been observed into three parts. The rent of the land, the wages of labor, and the profits of stock, and constitutes a revenue to three different orders of people, to those who live by rent, to those who live by wages, and to those who live by profit. These are the three great, original, and constituent orders of every civilized society from whose revenue that of every other order is ultimately derived. The interest of the first of those great, of those three great orders, right, that's from, that's from rent, landlords, it appears from what have, has, just, has been just now said is strictly and inseparably connected with the general interest of the society. Whatever either promotes or obstructs the one necessarily promotes or obstructs the other. When the public deliberates concerning any regulation of commerce or police, the proprietor of land never can mislead it with a view to promote the interest of their own particular order, at least if they have any tolerable knowledge of that interest. They are indeed too often defective in this tolerable knowledge. They are the only one of the three orders whose revenue costs them neither labor nor care, but comes to them, as it were, of its own accord and independent of any plan or project of their own, right? Because it's the plan or project of other people working on the land. They don't have to do anything a landlord, the proprietor of the land. They don't have to do anything. They can let somebody else have a plan and a project on it and labor on it. That indolence, which is the natural effect of the ease and security of their situation, renders them too often not only ignorant, but incapable of that application of mind which is necessary in order to foresee and understand the consequences of any public regulation. The interest of the second order, that of those who live by wages, is as strictly connected with the interest of the society as that of the first. The wages of the laborer, it has already been shown, are never so high as when the demand for the labor is continually rising or when the quantity employed is every year increasing considerably. When this real wealth of the society becomes stationary, his wages are soon reduced to what is barely enough to enable him to bring up a family or to continue the race of laborers, right? That means he's <clears throat> unable to raise a family and not even to work. That's what continue the race of laborers, right? When the society declines, they fall even below this. Less laborers, less jobs, less people, right? The order of proprietors may perhaps gain more by the prosperity of society 
than that of laborers, but there is no order that suffers so cruelly from its decline. But though the interest of the laborer is strictly connected with that of the society, he is incapable either of comprehending that interest or of understanding its connection with his own. So commonly the people who are working the land and doing everything to make it all happen are incapable of comprehending the interest or understanding the connection with his own interests. His condition leaves him no time to receive the necessary information, right? That of working all the fucking time. His condition leaves him no time to receive the necessary information, and his education and habits are commonly such as to render him unfit to judge even though he was fully informed. Right. Th that's, I mean, his condition leaves him no time. So working so much leaves him no time to receive the information, necessary information. And his education and habits are commonly such as to render him unfit to judge even though he was fully informed. So even if somebody is fully informed, even if they know all the information, even if it's already proposed to all of them, they're basically too stupid because of of their education, right? Because they're not looking at education and their habits, right? Of not even paying attention to anything that's educative in the first place, that they can't even understand what the hell is happening to them, right? That's what that's what's saying. His condition leaves him no time to receive the necessary information, and his education and habits are commonly such as to render him unfit to judge even though he was fully informed. And you could have all the information right before him, but you're just, because of the habits, the things that you do, right? Watching cat videos all day long and not studying something that's worth of any value, right? Hey, yes, I'm talking to you. Um, but did you, did, that, that those are your habits, that you're unfit to even understand what's going on, to judge even though you were fully informed. It could be right there in front of you. That's why I think a lot of things are hidden in plain sight. Quite funny, but you can't decode it if you don't speak the language. Then you can't read the code of the matrix. Right, so I'm going to read that again. His condition, we're talking about the laborers. But though the interest of the laborer is strictly connected with that of society, he is incapable either of comprehending that interest or, un or of understanding its connection with its own. I like the way that the fact that the word connection here is spelled with an X and not a, um, and not a CT in the middle. Instead of C-O-N-N-E-C-T-I-O-N, it's just... C-O-N-N-E-X-I-O-N. We should spell connection like that some more. I'm gonna I'm gonna continue to spell connection like that from now on. It's much more convenient. Just an X. Alright. His condition leaves him no time to receive the necessary information, and his education and habits are commonly such as to render him unfit to judge even though he was fully informed. In the public deliberations, therefore, his voice is little heard and less regarded, except upon some particular occasions when his clamor is animated, set on, and supported by his employers, not for his, but their own particular purposes. <laughs> his employers constitute the third order, 
that of those who live by profit. It is the stock that is employed for the sake of profit, which puts into motion the greater part of the useful labor of every society. The plans and projects of the employers of stock regulate and direct all the most important operations of labor, and profit is the end proposed by all those plans and projects. But the rate of profit does not, like rent and wages, rise with the prosperity and fall with the declension of the society. On the contrary, it is naturally low in rich and high in poor countries. And it is always highest in the countries which are going fastest to ruin. Now, this is an interesting thing, because it's not just in countries that are going fastest to ruin, it's in economies. It's another word that are going fastest to ruin. That's why you can profit very well by buying low and selling high. So if you see an economy or like a real estate market crashing, your profits can be the highest, right? But most people run away from real estate market crashes. They start selling because they're scared that it's going to stay that way when people should be holding on to it for long term or staying in it instead of running away. So you start seeing something crash, go buy a bunch of stuff and, and hold on to it. You'd be glad that you did. People always need housing. On the contrary, it is naturally low in rich and high in poor countries, and it is always highest in the countries which are going fastest to ruin. The interest of this third order, therefore, has not the same connection with the general interest of the society as that of the other two. Merchants and master manufacturers are, in this order, the two classes of people who commonly employ the largest capitals and who by their wealth draw to themselves the greatest share of the public consideration. As during their whole lives they are engaged in plans and projects, they have frequently more acuteness of understanding than the greater part of country gentlemen. As their thoughts, however, are commonly exercised rather about the interest of their own particular branch of business than about that of society, their judgment even when given with the greatest candor, which it has not been upon every occasion, is much more to be depended upon with regard to the former of those two objects than with regard to the latter, <clears throat> meaning they're more caring about their business than they are society. Their superiority over the country gentlemen is not so much in their knowledge of the public interest as in their having a better knowledge of their own interest than he has of his. It is by his superior this it is by this superior knowledge of their own interest that they have frequently imposed upon his generosity and persuaded him to give up both his own interest and that of the public from a very simple but honest conviction that their interest and not his was the interest of the public. Wow, fooling the employees thinking that the that the interest of the employer is more important than that of the public when it's the employees who make up the public at large. Interest. Interesting. A good uh, ledger domain going on there of the mind. Continuing. The interest of the dealers, however, in any particular branch of trade or manufacture is always in some respects different from and even opposite to that of the public. To widen the market and to narrow the competition is always the interest of the dealers. 
To widen the market and to narrow the competition is always the interest of the dealers. To widen the market may frequently be agreeable enough to the interest of the public, but to narrow the competition must always be against it, and can serve only to enable the dealers, by raising their profits above what they naturally would be, to levy, for their own benefit, an absurd tax upon the rest of their fellow citizens. The proposal of any new law or regulation of commerce which comes from this order ought always to be listened to with great precaution and ought never to be adopted till after having been long and carefully examined, not only with the most scrupulous, but with the most suspicious attention. It comes from an order of men whose interest is never exactly the same with that of the public, who have generally an interest to deceive and even to oppress the public, and who accordingly have, upon many occasions, both deceived and oppressed it. Yo, right there. That's the that's the end of it. He just he just put it down. I mean that's what he was waiting for to say this whole freaking long ass chapter. The interest of the dealers, however, in any particular branch of manufacture is always in some respects different from and even opposite to that of the public. They're an order of men whose interest is never exactly the same with that of the public, who have generally an interest to deceive and even to oppress the public, and who accordingly have, upon many occasions, both deceived and oppressed it. That's the end of that. Done. All right. You've been listening to Wealth Attraction Research, War, that's 11, the conclusion of Chapter 11. Finally, after having a technical difficulty on wisdom, this is Wealth Attraction Research, W-A-R, War, the 11 conclusion, Chapter 11 conclusion, presented by Hakeem Alibokas Alexander on Spreaker, Social Podcasting, Wisdom, Social Audio Inc., and Colin social podcasting presented for world reading club in association with exercisingyourmind.com and unique equilibrium uh, thanks for coming back and joining for the rest of this uh, cassandra Diane, marcy and magnificent aquarius marcy cheryl athena Steele, jenny hatch what's up jenny miranda dehan and victoria uh, what is it miranda dehan and victoria stigliano the Tsuban and uh, social gatherings. Whether you've come and sat a spell or passed on through, welcome. And until next time, stay well.